Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we talk about the single most important number that you need to know as part of your financial plan and a few other things. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, we're back and we got some pretty good feedback from our episode last week. Apparently, people like hearing us argue a little bit. That's good news because I like arguing, so maybe we'll do more of that. I do as well. And in fact, as we get into our main topic, which we're not quite at yet today, but I think we're just going to let it free flow organically, almost like how we do our pre-show. So generally, we will talk about our episodes We'll kind of hash out our ideas. We have the argument, and then we try to present like a cohesive thought process during the actual show so that it doesn't just sound like me and Dan's chaos. But in this case, we're literally going to skip that step and actually let the chaos happen on the air and see if that's entertaining. So uh, if you do continue to like that format, that's okay. We'd love to hear from you. And if you think this is terrible podcasting, then uh, we'll listen to that as well. Before we go there, Dan, the only word of support I got other than for the show format was against my perspective on rice cakes. Oh, my God. So what I have here right now is a apple cinnamon was the flavor you were defending, right? That's correct. This is the goat of rice cakes. Uh, I believe so. I'm willing right. to I'm willing to back my uh, back that perspective. OK, I have them here. So I'm giving them a chance not to turn it into an ASMR podcast or something weird where people are going to listen to me crunch on a rice cake. But I'm going to try a rice cake for the first time in many, many years and see if I was wrong about that perspective. All right, let's go. I'm going to advise the listening audience that if you are easily offended by the sound of crunching food, you might want to skip ahead 30 seconds or a minute. Ross is opening yeah. the bag. I, I'm like literally opening the package. They're as fresh as they can be. Bought them yesterday from my my local market. Here we go. A rice cake. Let's go. <laughs> There's a, a look of pain on your face. I mean, all right. It's not as bad as I remembered, but it's not good. I'm not like excited about this. All right. I accept that. Is that okay? Yeah. That's okay. I mean, I, I read the nutritional facts. There's like no nutritional value to a rice cake. You might as well just be eating inflated paper. Yes. I think for me, that's part of the appeal is sometimes your mouth wants an activity. Right. Got it. So you're you just wanna... trying to like make yourself feel full, but not actually add any nutrients to your system. That's that's what's going on. Yeah, you're bored. You want to chew on something. It helps you think, or I don't know, past time. A rice cake is the perfect snack for that. My desk and floor are now covered in rice cake <laughs> junk. Uh, so, all right, good experiment. We're gonna move on from the rice cakes. But let the record reflect. Ross took one bite. <laughs> I did, I did take cake. a bite of a rice cake and. My reaction is not as violent in a negative way as I thought it might be. Ross, neutral on apple cinnamon rice cakes. Yeah. No, no, no. It's, you're, you're right. It's not quite as bad. I, I was thinking that they were may hard, way like harder than that. So maybe they were stale or something last time I tried one. I don't know. It's been a long time. Like decades. 
Yeah. When you said you had a, a surprise for me, I wasn't sure where that was going. Uh, this was a nice surprise. I enjoyed it. It was that. a nice surprise. Another nice surprise. Interest rates on savings accounts, meaningfully higher. I'm up to one and a half. So I personally use Marcus, and I, I look at the sites that rank them. So I realize Marcus isn't the highest. That's not an endorsement for them. It's just who I happen to still be using. One and a half percent on savings. I mean, I've never been so excited by one and a half percent as I am today. I mean, I realize that still means we're losing roughly 7% on on our purchasing power, but uh, on cash sitting around, it's nice to see it doing something. And there have been several plans, and I think you and I have shared this experience, where just upgrading somebody's savings account has added pretty meaningful value and in some cases covered the entirety of the fee that we're charging to give advice, which I think has been a, a wild experience. Yeah, and if you're sitting on a couple thousand bucks as an emergency reserve, I think moving from single dollars to tens of dollars of interest may not be so exciting. But if you're collecting money for perhaps the purchase of a house or some major purchase and are sitting on substantial amounts in savings, moving from 0.05% interest to 1.5% interest and rising, that can make a big difference. And these high-yield savings accounts have been increasing their rate of interest at a much faster pace than most of the large banks. Yeah, so I, I've been encouraged by that. And it's not its not that I'm overweighting cash purposefully just to go get this 1.5%. I think that's not the point. But uh, for many reasons that we talk about on our show, there's reason to keep cash, right? For emergencies and, and for upcoming purchases. Uh, if you're in that case, you might as well at least get a few bucks of interest out of it and, and not feel like you're completely treading water and getting nothing. And I find that some of the, the biggest banks, the most major banks, have the worst interest rates. And so uh, for me, what I've always done, and I've done this for a couple of reasons, I've always split my checking institution for somebody local where I can actually go make a cash deposit or a cash withdrawal if I needed to and deal with a banker. And then I keep my savings in one of the online-only institutions where I'm going to earn a little bit more. It also adds that three-day lag. In in reality, I found it's more like one to two nowadays, but it adds a little bit of a lag time between taking money out of savings, which in the times of my life that I needed more discipline in that area, uh, it really helped me there as well. So um, that's been a, a system that's worked for me, and maybe it works for you as well. I've actually done that in the past as well, is uh, set up a savings account somewhere that was harder for me to get to to discourage how convenient it would be to just move money back and forth within the same institution. Um, bringing it back to mortgages for a second, years ago, whenever we used to talk with people about paying down their mortgage, which many people have in the 2% range, somewhere in that 2 to 3% bracket, I always used to joke that soon their savings accounts will probably be paying more than their mortgage rate. We're not there yet, but we're not too far from that either. Yeah, I mean, if you can borrow money at 2%, and make money for free at three, you know, like you, you can, and you can do that on a treasury now. What's the 10 year treasury rate? We're doing it live, folks. I, I think the 10 year treasury is at like 3%. I think it is too. Uh, 2.659. Yeah. So you can, you can essentially, to the extent that you believe, and it, it did tick above three. So in mid June, it had ticked above three and it's come back down just a little bit here. But yeah, so if you would like to, let the government borrow some of your money to the extent that you believe there is no securer of a borrower than the U.S. government, Yeah, you can earn 2.65% on a 10-year treasury as your yield 
offsetting your borrowing cost of, in some cases, two and a half percent. So I do think that if you've got super duper low interest rate debt, now granted, you're paying some principal, so that doesn't mean you're going to completely offset your payment. It just means you're going to offset your cost on the insurance or excuse me, on the interest rate side. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's only going to grow. That that spread is going to grow over time. So we'll watch that. It's, it's very interesting, uh, especially as we fast forward a decade and people are, you know, not even halfway through their thirty year mortgage with insane interest rates just on the on the books of these big banks. All right. So the main thing we wanted to talk about today was if we could boil down the most important number in a financial plan. Right. So not even in a financial plan, but like for yourself, as you evaluate your financial life, what's the one thing you have to know? Or if you only were going to know one thing, what would it be? I kind of thought that this should be two different items. Dan, I think you disagree with me a little bit, which is kind of how we ended up in in our we're going to do another disagreement show, not necessarily pure point counterpoint. What's your one number, Dan? Well, so this was actually one of your things, if I remember correctly, and I don't I don't really remember what you said, but your savings rate, I think, might be the single most important number to any individual, especially during your working years. So everyone talks about your spending, your budget items, and I would say that almost none of it matters because your savings rate encapsulates all of that. Now, some people have a positive savings rate, some people have a negative savings rate, and it's important to be true to yourself as to where you fall. But if you know how much is hitting your savings account on a net basis, that's really all you need to know to kind of forecast your future. All right. So savings rate, what we're talking about here what percentage of your income do you save? What percentage of your income is going away and being deferred for future goals? And for people that are in a W-2 job, if you have just a straight salary job and the primary savings you do is into a workplace retirement plan and you set it at 12% and you know that you get a 3% match, it's very, very easy to figure out, right? If you spend every other dollar that hits your checking account after you put money into a 401k, your savings rate is incredibly simple. By the way, Dan, do you count the employer match in a savings rate when you do the math? I do, because it's real money that you have access to in the future. So it's almost employer dollars going to you and then just automatically being put into your savings account or your 401k. I tend to split it out when I, when I actually write those numbers out. So I, I I tend to write it as two different figures. One is the pure amount that you're saving and like literally deferring of your income, and then what your total savings rate is con- considering the matches. Again, I I think that's that's interesting, but I I do find it more impressive when the savings rate is higher purely on a horsepower basis. If somebody's got a really impressive match, that's great and that's like wonderful for them, but that doesn't always indicate the same amount of discipline. Now they may not need it. But it doesn't indicate the same discipline of saying, I had this money, it was mine, and I just chose not to spend it. Right. So so one reason I think savings rate is such a big number is because of the inputs into, into identifying your savings rate. One of those is spending. Um, and if you're factoring in the company match, right, that's not really a factor of money that you had that you could have spent, like you said. So separating it, separating it out is helpful. Um, for those purposes of kind of splitting out the different variables that make up that number. All right. So savings rate, I think we're in agreement on this. Uh, You're right. This was one of mine. And I think that for somebody in their working year, savings rate is the most critical input. 
if you told me nothing else about your financial life and you said, I'm saving 17% of my income, like my pre-tax income, unless you just started doing that at age 70 and you've done it for one year, that's generally going to get you there, right? If I don't know anything else... Now, there could be a million other variables. You could have gone through a bankruptcy. You could have gone through a divorce and lost enormous amounts of wealth, right? There's so many things that could have happened in the meantime. So I'm not saying I know everything from that number. But in terms of indicators that I think are going to have a likely impact, if you tell me you're saving, you know, I'm going to say 15% or more. That, That tends to be the number that I've noticed is, you know, below 15%, things might be tight. Maybe they work if you're a lower income earning person um, or, you know, Social Security is going to do more of the heavy lifting. But in in my opinion, generally 15% or more is the target that we're looking for. If you tell me that you're doing that without doing the heavy lifting, I can probably assume that you're in okay shape. Or at least have the the mindset to be financially responsible. I proposed that in retirement, we needed a different metric. And I actually thought of two. So I, I mentioned one to you. And, and the one that I mentioned to you was the percentage uh, of the portfolio that's in safe assets, right? So when we think about portfolio management, the, the biggest number that matters is what percentage do you have in risk assets? which we're going to assume that risk assets is things like stocks, it's equity, it is you know, volatile assets, and then kind of safer assets, which are not always safe. There's risks to everything, but things like bonds, things like cash, right? And so that combination of risk assets to lesser risk assets is the most important number. In my opinion, I kind of started there, but I actually think it might be burn rate as I'm thinking through this live, right? What percentage of your assets are you spending on an annual basis. But it is definitely a harder metric in retirement because those things are are really squishy. And you can go through some short periods of really high burn rate. And maybe your allocation doesn't look the same as everybody else, right? We talk about the 60-40, meaning 60% risk asset, 40% bond and cash, right? So maybe your portfolio looks wildly different from that because your burn rate looks different. But I think it's much harder to come up with a single number that encapsulates it for somebody in retirement. Yeah, I was thinking about this too. And I said, in in my mind, in retirement, we might need to switch metrics. But I would say that your savings rate is essentially the same thing as a burn rate, just inverse. It's just right? the inverse of it, right? Right, exactly. I, I think that's critical. There are so many factors that might influence your allocation that that's harder to create a rule of thumb about. like. You know, I think more telling is how quickly you're you're burning through your portfolio. So if you told me you're pulling one, two, three percent, four percent from the portfolio, you know, we can surmise that you're probably doing okay and and that's a fairly sustainable rate, almost regardless of how you're allocated, because it shows also again personal discipline. Whereas, you know, if, if I told if someone told me they were pulling 10% of their portfolio, I would immediately worry. Yeah, that's a, that's a scary number, and we've seen it. Um, and sure. and in a bull market, people get away with it. But I, I think knowing that that there's going to be variability in returns, when we see numbers like that, we get very concerned. You know where it came from for me to to focus on the allocation was something that Nick Majuli said in his book, 
where he kind of talked about the focus depending on where you are. And what he proposed was that your focus, when you don't have a lot of wealth created, needs to be on savings rate, right? So early in your career, you should be focused on savings rate. That's where you should spend your time. Once the portfolio gets to a certain size relative to what you're putting into it, you get to a point where there's like an inflection point where you simply can't add enough on a month-to-month basis to really move the needle, right? I mean, if you've got a million bucks and you're putting in a thousand dollars a month, you're like, yeah, that's great. And you're continuing to add to it and you should continue to add to it in most cases. But on a percentage basis, you're not having a huge needle move moment every time you put that thousand bucks in. It's still good discipline. It stops from your kind of lifestyle creep numbers. But your focus should be on managing the portfolio at that point and making good allocation decisions that are thoughtful and make sense. Where in those early days, you know, if you've put 500 bucks into your portfolio for the very first time and next, and you're like super concerned about how to invest that 500 bucks in month two, you're going to do the same thing. You've just doubled your portfolio size. Even if the first thing you bought in month one with your first $500 investment is total nonsense and goes to zero, you're overcoming it with the savings, right? And so it's kind of like identifying where is the mistake going to hurt you more uh, in in my mind. And that's why I was thinking towards an allocation-based metric. Yeah. I mean, clearly an important metric and something to track and be purposeful about. Uh, I'm going to stick with with the cash flow metric. I think that's, for me, the most important because oftentimes for the average person, what we're solving for is, am I going to have enough cash to spend in my retirement? And um, everything else around that is just optimizing. I mean, I agree, right? It ca- Retirement is a cash flow problem. It's not a wealth problem. It's not, do you have enough wealth accumulated? It is, where is your cash going to come from? And that is such a different mindset. I'm like literally choking on rice cake, by the way. <laughs> That's like the worst thing I could have done before this podcast was eat a rice cake. I can't even get like a normal swallow. You need a, I, a glass of milk, Ross. I'm moving more negative on rice cakes as the show goes on. This is awful. We're remote. I can't say I can't perform a Heimlich if you start choking. Yeah, no, this is this is not good. All right. Where were we? Cash flow problem. Right. It, no, it, it is. It's, it's a cash flow problem. If you've got 10 million bucks and you're completely illiquid and you can't get any income out, you're effectively broke from a retirement perspective. Like, what are you going to live on? It does not matter if you don't have liquidity. True, true. Are there other numbers that you would have thought of, Dan, that get like flashed around as important that you would have you know, maybe gravitated to. I mean, so I, I saw a couple lists out there. Some of them talked about net worth um, or how much money you owe. So it is like your debt amount or net worth, does that even fall into your consideration? So I think they're important, um, but I don't think they're key numbers, right? I think cash flow encapsulates your debt load, right? You have to cover the cost of that debt. And if you have enough coming in to do so, maybe we don't care about the debt. It doesn't matter as long as you can support it and it's you know not a burden on your on your personal situation. Net worth again, all relative in a bubble, it doesn't mean anything. They say you should be you know saying you have a net worth of a million dollars could be great or terrible depending on who you are. That said, 
I often do like thinking about personal finance and, and looking at your personal situation like a business. So even as we were talking about, um, you know, savings rates and net positive cash flow and things like that, I automatically think of like developing your personal personal financial statements like a business would. Uh, my attitude towards debt often coincide with the way businesses do. Like I, I'm fine carrying debt if it serves a purpose and you can support it. You know, the largest companies in the world carry debt for a reason. So they're important. I, I like tracking myself that way. Am I investing money? Am I borrowing money? Like how are things looking from point to point? But I don't think they're critical. If I had to distill it to one number, net worth, meaningless, total debt, meaningless, you know, just cash in, cash out. That's what I would be tracking. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you count to go back to savings rate? And just since we're chopping this up on the air, do you count debt repayment towards that in in your mind? Because I've always said that I think the debt repayment muscle is similar to the savings muscle, right? You have to essentially not consume a dollar that you earn. And in my mind, those are very similar. But they aren't necessarily the same, right? Because you can overpay your mortgage if you're putting extra against the mortgage. You can do that in a very disciplined way with effectively a high savings rate and get to the end and not have a single thing saved and what you have is a paid off home. So at the extreme example, even though I think of those as comparable tools for, for the individual, they're not necessarily the same in terms of how they play out. Yeah, I'd agree with you. They're they're related things. And when we put together a plan, I normally look at any debt repayment or debt overpayment, I guess, as part of the available savings bucket. So maybe we decide to do something differently with it if it's appropriate, but they're not identical, right? It is not truly a part of your savings rate, just because what you said, liquidity is so important when we're talking about savings. Got it. So you're more thinking of the optionality. So if I'm overpaying my mortgage by 500 bucks a month, you're going to say, all right, do we still want to do that or should we redirect that cash? But you're not necessarily including that in the savings rate specifically. Right, right. It could be part of our savings rate if we made a different decision. And like you said, it's the same muscle. You could still choose to do something different with that money if you wanted to. Uh, But at that moment, it is not growing on the side that you could access in an emergency or to make an investment. Yeah, it's such an easy reframe, right? Because you're you're basically saying, look, we can push this somewhere else without you making any changes to how you spend money, right? And, and if you can bolster savings without people feeling like you've actually restricted anything, then this, this is drifting into other topics. But this is why when I start a budgeting exercise, I always start from what are you doing right now? I basically want to know what can we do before you start to feel it? Right, Because if it's just a matter of rearranging some of the chess pieces and you feel like you have the same amount of income, but we push it somewhere else, those are always really successful planning strategies because you don't feel like you're giving anything up. We don't have to talk about restricting consumption from where you're already choosing to be comfortable with it. So um, that's stuff that I gravitate towards a lot. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you on that because the second you have to crawl into a budget and look at every transaction and see, all right, let's see what we're spending on going out to eat this month. And, you know, it starts to become such a painful exercise because no one's the same month after month. Like my last month might not be the same as my next month. So starting to track item by item for me, and I think we're kindred spirits in this regard, is the worst assignment you could give someone. Uh, Now there are zero sum budgeters out there and I've worked with some and I 
I admire them greatly because it is not an easy task. And if you've done that successfully, like you have such a firm grasp on your personal finance that, you know, I, I don't think anything compares to that. But again, going back to savings rate, if I know what historically I've been able to set aside, I almost don't care what I'm spending the money on because I know it's gone. I'm going to spend it one way or another. I don't want to box myself in to, you know, limits within categories. That's just not how I live. And I don't think how many people live. So it offers you freedom on both sides. It's like freedom to, to live within this general budget guideline while you're working. And then also the freedom in knowing you're doing what you need to do to still put yourself in a successful place in the future. And that, that's what I do. That's how I live. So all in all, Dan, it sounds like the only place we're in pure agreement on the most important number is that savings rate is the most important for somebody that is preparing themselves for financial independence. Savings rate is the only number that we're saying, if you have to know one thing, that's what you should know. 100%. If, if you come to a financial planning meeting with whoever it may be, you should know what you're putting away each month. It shouldn't be very hard either. It should be pretty clear. I think it's way harder for people with variable incomes that, that have to make those elections late, but, but yes. Yeah. So for variable incomes, it is hard. And I speak from a place of knowledge because I've grown up in a household where everyone has variable incomes. Measure point to point. So your balances don't lie. So look at your accounts from one date, whether it be the beginning of the year and the end of the year and see where you've, where you've moved to. That includes seeing your credit card balances to see if maybe your cash is going up, but your, your credit card balances are going up more. That's a negative savings rate. So be true to yourself. See where your money is going. Make sure you're net positive uh, and see what that rate looks like and be intentional about what you're doing too. And if you're doing that on investment accounts, like something that you, like a SEP IRA or something, you should be looking at the contributions, not just the account value. Don't give yourself credit for the market going up or and don't penalize yourself for the market going down either. Uh, take take the market environment out of it. You just want to look at cash flow in or out on these investment accounts. So so try to eliminate the market movement, which I think makes it tougher. But uh, most of the brokers, if you look at like a year long summary on their website or the end of year statement, it's going to tell you what your annual contribution or de- deposit or withdrawal looked like. So that's the number to focus on. Yeah, th- they'll all have that there for you somewhere. So get used to finding it and uh, and track yourself. Sounds good. Uh, well, for folks that have questions for the show, want to weigh in on any of our debates here today, whether we got the most important number right, whether rice cakes are a trash snack or not, check your balances at outlook.com is the email address for the show. We really appreciate hearing from you. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We will catch you all next week.